Uh, if you would, turn with me to Acts 17. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. Love the Bible, and I'm thankful for it. While you're turning there, um, I just want to let you know that this week we're going to focus a little less on individual change, though many of the principles we're going to talk about will also apply. And we're going to focus more on the need for organizations, churches, companies, and even families to be willing and able to change. Uh, We established the first week of this series that growth is a sign of health. And even if Love City hits a season where we're not growing numerically, we should be growing into deeper and better disciples of King Jesus. There should never be a point we are not in some way growing. Uh, That's absolutely a sign of health. And even if um, you're of the age where you're done growing physically, most of us that are adults, we're done growing physically, um, taller anyways, for some of us growing in other ways. Um, So, yeah, you should always be growing in knowledge and character. So even if you're an adult, you won't be growing any taller. Some of you are mad at Jesus about where that process stopped. I'll be praying for you, you know. God makes no mistakes, and you're special just like a snowflake and, and all of that stuff. Um, but uh, you should always be growing in knowledge and character, integrity, and, and most of all, in, in your capacity for love. Uh, we should always be growing. And so we ask the question, if we believe that growth is a good thing, we ask the question the first week, can you grow without changing? And the clear answer is no, you can't. And so we, we have to go from hating change or at best tolerating it to embracing it and even being thankful for it. When we understand, when we come to understand that change is happening around us, when we come to that realization, our reaction should be less what it often is prone to be, which is to freak out or grab on, try to stop something from being different and realize that God uses change to grow us and to help us uh, fulfill the mission he's given us. So we're going to read in Acts 17. Uh, We're going to start in verse 16. We're going to read all the way to verse 34. And uh, this set of scriptures is one of the most influential for us when it comes to establishing how it is we go about doing ministry and preaching the gospel in cultural context. This is a very awesome picture uh, of Paul uh, doing that very thing. So let's start in verse 16, and we're going to read. I've got, I'm not sure what's happening. Something's going on. Uh, in the throat and or chest area here. And so some of you have come tonight and you said, I've never seen a miracle. Well, if I make it through this whole deal tonight without my voice cracking like a prepubescent 12-year-old boy at some point, you will have seen a miracle, okay? So I'm just prepping you now. Voice is probably going to crack. It might get weird, but just power through it with me, okay? (laughs) Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers as in there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. 
For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. If we pause there, that quote right there that that Paul says uh, that God gives life and breath and all things, what he's doing there is he's actually quoting some of the poetic rock stars of that day. So we see here, Paul's really putting on a clinic about contextual preaching of the gospel, uh, his willingness to bend and shape methods, never ever though sacrificing the message. So uh, if you research during the time there in Athens, the people he's talking to would have been very aware with that statement. Uh, and so he's, he's kind of quoting, for them, poets were a big deal. Um, you know, <clears throat> for us it's more Justin Bieber and Oprah, but he's quoting the people they'd be aware of. He's reaching them where they're at, okay? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he was not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are also are his children. Again, quoting their poets, their, their uh, people that they're aware of and, and have influence in their culture at that time. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. <clears throat> Because he has fixed a day in which we will judge, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So you see what Paul does there. He, he kind of butters them up, uses some of their own references, tries to reach them where they're at, connect with them at their level of understanding. Then he drops the bomb on them. Every single person is going to have to repent. And that message was no more popular then than it is now. People don't want to hear that, right? What are you talking about, repent? What do I have to repent for? I'm a fairly good person, you know. I know a lot of people that live on my street that are worse than me, right? We have this sense of self-righteousness that does not serve us well, nor does it have any congruence with what the Scriptures teach. So uh, he drops the bottom on them, tells them, listen, you're going to be judged by Jesus. You need to repent and trust him. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some of them joined and believed. Among also were Dionysius, Dariopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see Paul here speaking at the Areopagus in Athens. This is a, a place in the city where um, all of the kind of know-it-alls we come together. You've got poets, philosophers, you've got uh, just intellectual thinkers, academics, and they would all come together and kind of tease each other with their great intelligence um, and just bat around new ideas, and they kind of fancied themselves uh, pretty awesome. So, But here's what he's doing. Is he goes into that situation. He's putting on a clinic for us here on how to change the methods without harming the message. If you read just before here, Paul had just left Berea, uh, and some of you are familiar with the Bereans, sometimes called the noble Bereans. Some of you, the only Berean you've ever heard of is the bookstore. Uh, the Bereans were a people in a place and they were known, they're sometimes called noble because they were known for having a very high view of the scriptures, 
and caring much about what God had to say. They had a hunger for God's word. So uh, we don't get as much detail about what Paul said to them, but it's very, we can assume very confidently that Paul preached a different message to the Bereans than he did in Athens. In Bereans, he's talking to a group of people that are hungry for the word, they trust the word, they hold the word in high view. He probably didn't have to dance and sing as much, try to quote poets and come up with all this other stuff, try to relate to them, talk to them about their idols and how. Because here's, here's what he's saying. I don't know if you caught it. As Paul's walking through Athens, there's these idols everywhere, okay? These images out of stone, precious metals, sometimes wood, and people would worship them. They would bring them food. They would pray to them, these, these idols made with hands. And they were so religious, Paul said, he even found an idol that was to the unknown God. So they've got these hundreds of idols to these hundreds of gods, but just to make sure they didn't miss one, somebody made an idol and put to the unknown God on it. And what Paul says to them is, I'm here to tell you. I got some, I got some good news for you. I'm here to tell you who the unknown God is. That unknown God is the one true God. He's the creator God. He's the one who made everything, who spoke and created all. He's the one that has given you life and breath the one which we have our very existence because of, and he's the only one worthy of your worship. And you, so you see how he comes to where they're at. He uses what it is they're already aware of, and, that, and he uses that to preach the gospel very effectively because we see in the end that even in a place that would be prone, a very humanistic culture prone to reject the repentance and humility that, that comes in the preaching of the gospel, that some did believe. And so that's a great encouragement to us in our day. So he surely preached a different message uh, than he did at Athens, where they're kind of an uppity, humanistic culture. Uh, they have much more emphasis on intellectual capacities to philosophize than what the God of the Bible would have to say. So we need to understand, also in this passage of Scripture, it says that God appoints the times and places where he puts us. God has appointed you to be where you are, and, and I would say in where you were born, where you are now, the time period, I mean... Some people wish they lived farther in the future so, you know, they could just plug into a virtual reality machine and live their life through that because life's too hard. Or some people wish they were born 200 years ago and life was simpler. That's all ignorant. You should quit wishing that. God had you born when he wanted you born. And he has you in the place where he wants you to be. And so we need to figure out God has called us. If he's called us to his grace, if he's revealed the gospel to us, if he's changed us by uh, by his beautiful power, then we are automatically then called to share that message with those that are around us. So we've got to figure out what's our context. We can't, we can't just get online and look at what ministries in California or China or Africa that are exploding, we can't just look at what they're doing and say, okay, we'll just copy everything they do and we'll do effective ministry here in Cincinnati. Cincinnati's different than California. How many of you understand that? Some of you are like, oh, I want to go there. I, I lived there for 10 years. It's not as awesome as you think. Um, sunshine more? Yes. Weird people more? Yes. Okay? Um, but they need Jesus too. So I'm glad that somebody, God has called somebody to reach them. Um, but we have to contextualize the gospel to where it is. And we need to, we need to have a, a burden and a passion for the place where God has put us. And so we see here Paul's willingness to change the method of preaching. But he clearly never ever, ever changes the message. And to be clear, the, the message that, that Paul was preaching is the same message we're preaching today. 
That message is the gospel. The gospel is our great jewel. The gospel is our focus. The gospel is the only message we have to preach. It is the only reason we exist as an organization, as a church, is to lift up and perpetuate this beautiful message, telling people that they no longer need to be hopeless, but that Jesus has made a way. We will never, ever stray from that. We will never, ever stray away from telling people that they have sinned and they are imperfect. We will not, I don't care how unpopular that gets, we will not stop saying that. Because we cannot faithfully preach the gospel without letting people know their desperate need for Jesus. Because we find ourselves in the midst of a culture, we need to understand the day, time, and place where we live. The mindset of the people for years, decades now, marketers have been bombarding you and everyone around you with this message that you are worth it. You're the best. You should have a bunch of self-esteem. I'm not against you having self-esteem. I'm, I'm not against you not hating yourself, but most of us have a way too inflated idea of who we are. We all think, we all think too much, too highly of ourselves often. And so when the message of the gospel is presented and, and we faithfully let someone know from the beginning that none of us is perfect, that Romans says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that because of that we've been separated from God by that sin, that's not popular. But that's one of those places where the, the goal line can't move. Now, we will flex, bend, and move with the methods that, in, in the way that we preach that message, but we will not stop preaching that message. We will not stop letting people know they need Jesus. And not only are we going to let them know that they are hopelessly lost and separated from God by their sin, but we're going to let them know there's a solution to that. We're not going to be unbalanced and just constantly tell people, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. We're going to tell you that Jesus is good, and that he can take away the bad, and he can replace it. He can take all your sin all your shame, all your brokenness, all the things you've done that you don't want anybody to know about. He can take all of that. He can erase it, crumple it up, throw it away. He can wash you clean. White as snow, as one of my favorite hymns says. That's our message. There is hope in Christ. You can be reconciled to the God that made you. There is reason for hope. Always. Always. That is our message. That is the gospel. That we are not perfect, and because of that, we're separated from God. But Jesus came. He lived the perfect life we never could have lived. We couldn't pull it off. And after living that perfect life, he stepped in our place, dying the death we should have. And because he was willing to do that, we can put faith in what he did, his finished work. Not only that he died for our sins, but that he rose again. Paul mentioned that in his presentation of the gospel, didn't he? That God proved he proved who Jesus was by raising him from the dead, validating everything that he said. <clears throat> this is our message. It's our great jewel, and it's precious to us. However, when it comes to methods, the church has historically struggled with change. Many times we confuse the traditions of men with the commands of Scripture. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You can think of some examples through history. We'll talk about some. Many times God's people have elevated the methods, the methods of preaching the gospel to the level of the message of the gospel. They should not be the same. Our traditions, the way we do things, is not on the same level as the beautiful message that we preach, the timeless treasure that is the gospel. There must be flexibility there. This, this always leads to stagnation and eventual death of a movement or an organization, this Inability or unwillingness to be flexible with methods always leads to the death of a movement or an organization. 
you heard me say that right, a stubborn, prideful refusal to change will lead to the death of any organization. You see it in companies that refuse to change. You see it uh, a lot in churches. I don't know how many of you drive around Cincinnati and notice that there are many churches closing doors. There are thousands of churches per year closing their doors. And it's, <clears throat> it's, most of the time it's not because they, some of them are just unfaithful churches and Jesus closes the doors because they've lost their first love and they've overcorrected because there is a, there is a danger here. I'm trying to get us to be willing and able and thankful for change, but some people, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a point where you embrace change too much, where it starts to bleed into where the, the message changes with the methods. Oh, well, people don't like to hear sin. Well, I mean, we want to get them into church, so we'll, we'll quit saying sin. Well, I mean, the gospel, it's, it's, just, it's, it's a little too rough around the edges. It's a, it's a little too offensive to tell people that, that they need Jesus. So let's, let's figure out a way to get them in here. We can, we can preach some sermons that make everyone feel warm and fuzzy, and, and they'll, you know, hopefully after a while, maybe, maybe in, a, in a small group or something, we can, we can preach the real gospel to them. That's too far. It's, that's too much change. Uh, Paul went in the midst of a very hostile environment in the Areopagus, went toe-to-toe with these guys that supposedly were the men of their day when it came to new ideas, philosophies, stood toe-to-toe, preached the gospel raw, beautiful, and straight up, and some came to faith. And we're going to be in the same situation. You in your workplace, you live out a gospel-influenced life. You're going to have opportunities then to share it. Some people will come to faith. Some, like what happened to Paul, will sneer at you. Some will walk around the corner and talk about how you're a religious nutcase and you're a freak. I can't believe this guy actually believes the Bible is the truth. Those sentiments are out there. That's the day in which we live, but we must not back away from it. Because real, real love demands that we're willing to confront the lies that people believe. Real love demands that we would risk offending someone by letting them know that their imperfection has created a need for the grace of Christ in their life. This message that love is always, well, I'll just beat around the bush and kind of pitter-patter around and it's always, you know, soft and fluffy, that's, that's not real love. If I really love my kids, if they're doing something dumb, I'm going to snatch them up. I'm going to teach them the right way. If I just let them do whatever they want because, man, I don't, want to, I don't ever want to offend them or, you know, I mean, Lucy wants to turn the toaster on and stick forks in it because it glows red and that looks fun. Well, gosh, I mean, I don't want to squelch her creativity or what if I offend her by telling her that's a bad idea? No! Get away from the toaster. As a matter of fact, you, your toaster privileges are gone. You will be eating untoasted bread from now until age 12. And you can't have a fork. You're going to eat with your hands. Congratulations. You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> what are we talking about? And yet we treat, we, we treat this, which is of much more magnitude and importance. We're talking about eternity here. She might get zapped by the toaster and that'd be bad. But man, we, we cower away from difficult conversations when what is at stake is someone's eternity. Do you understand? Eternity. Forever. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And so love demands that we would push past the potential awkwardness of confrontation to share the truth of the gospel. Yet, we must be intelligent as Paul was, know who we're talking to and what would be the best approach. And sometimes that takes 
Sometimes the only way that's possible is with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because let's be honest, not all of us are Paul. Not all of us are trained apologists that have every single argument laid out and figured out. And not all of us can, you know, translate it straight down to the Greek and all of that. And so some of us, because of that, we, we kind of shy away thinking that we're unqualified. Let me help you with something. This is such, you would do yourself good to read this passage of scripture later because there's so many truths in it that if we just believed them, man, man, we could get something done for Jesus. Paul mentions here as well that God no longer dwells in a temple made with hands. Do you understand the Holy Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, dwells in you? And thus, when you go into this difficult conversation, what you have with you is all of the power, intelligence, and anointing that God himself by his Holy Spirit has. Let me ask you something Dear one, do you believe God knows how to have a conversation with someone about his gospel? All he needs you to do is this. He'll speak through you. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will give you words in the moment when you need them. You know things. There's things buried down in your heart you don't even know of. And if you don't, even if you don't have that, the Holy Spirit will make up the gaps. What he's looking for is willing people that care less about their reputation and more about the reputation of Christ. People that are willing to live a life that actually opens the door for these kind of conversations. A love filled, a, a, a life full of joy and peace, a life that stands out as a light in the midst of darkness. This creates curiosity in unbelievers. This opens up the door, brings validity to the message. So we have to think about how, we, how, do, how do we look when we're in our job? I mean, if we, if we shut our physical eyes down and, and turn on a, a, a spiritual vision, if you had goggles like night vision goggles that went on, you could see what's going on in the spirit. What would it look like as you walk through your workplace? As people, their, their, their eyes, minds, and hearts are darkened. They don't understand the truth of the gospel. Would it be that you would be a blinding light walking in and, and amongst them and in the midst of them? Or would it be that you've, you've been toned down to kind of a, a shade of gray because you've been intimidated or just can't be bothered with it. you got too much going on in your own deal. What would it look like? What do we do with that? I, it, if I was to think there's any possibility that I would not stand out in stark contrast to those around me that don't know the truth of the gospel, then I would get on my knees and ask God to help me with that. It's not something I'm just going to white-knuckle decide, okay, I'll do better. I need God's anointing. I need His power. First, I need to care about it. <laughs> First, I need to care about it. And God will come along and make up for every part where we're not adequate. I take great, great comfort in the fact that I'm completely inadequate to do most of what God calls me to do. Leaves a bunch of room for him to make himself known. A bunch of room for me to point at him. Say, I mean, I know, I'm, <laughs> I know who I am. The most wretched of sinners before Christ... <clears throat> a simple hillbilly guy that loves him afterwards. But I'm willing. Not all, not all the time do I do the best at this, but whatever you are, whatever you think your shortcomings are, God will fill in those gaps. I promise you. Just be willing. So this, the church has historically struggled with change, um, but we're not, we're not going to. Oftentimes, the struggle to change surrounds things like technological advances, music, dress, and other things that men get really fired up about while God probably just laughs at us. 
There are things that oftentimes we think are super important that I think God just kind of shakes his head and laughs. Kind of like, I don't know, those of you that have no kids or have kids or have been around a kid know that like sometimes they just say and do just ridiculous, silly things. And sometimes all you can do is shake your head and laugh. Sometimes that's probably how God looks at us. As a, as a dad that loves us, sometimes like we, we're just all wound up about certain stuff. And he's like, oh, kids, you know, <laughs> I'm just glad he does that instead of like the old smack around, uh, which is sometimes probably what we deserve. But um, here we're going to talk about some things that we are willing to change to reach the people in the place and the time that God has called us to be. Okay, here's some things that we are willing to change. This is not an exhaustive list. This is and some examples of things just to get you thinking and seeing the difference between our traditions, our methods, and the message. The message will never be touched. We will always let people know they are in desperate need of Christ. We will always let people know that there is hope to be found in Christ and His finished work. That is going to be our jewel. That is going to be our great focus. That is our message. That is our focus. That is what we want to do. We will never, ever abandon that. However, as we progress over the next 50, 60, 70 years of doing ministry, uh, it may look different how we do that, how we approach that based on the culture around us. Uh, so some things that we are willing to change. Where we meet, okay? Uh, obviously, because um, we're moving soon. So we are not super attached to a place, a building, right? That's not always been the case for the church at large. There, there was a time period when people believed that the best way to honor God was to build beautiful, ornate sanctuaries and buildings that would, through their architecture and kind of artistic expression, would bring someone to a sense of awe just walking in. I'm not going to try to commentate on whether or not that was effective in that day. Maybe when everybody else lives in a mud hut and then you walk into something like the, the cathedrals of old that were just expansive spaces with beautiful architecture, maybe there was something that, that brought people to an understanding of the greatness and the grandeur of God. I'm not going to try to pass judgment on whether or not that was effective. However, I would say today... Our focus is not so much on making sure our facility blows people's minds when they walk in, <clears throat> which you probably already knew if you walked in here tonight. <laughs> That's not funny. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, hallelujah, right? We started out, um, by God's grace, we met in a living room, okay? Ten folks in a living room. Got to the point where we were breaking every fire code possible, and so we needed to get a place. And so we came to Norwood. We knew God called us to be here. Begin to search, begin to look, and the only door that opened, I won't say that, there's probably a couple other options, but the only door that made sense to open was for us to come meet in the lower level of this church building. However, we weren't really concerned about that because we know that every reference in the scriptures to the church is a reference to the people. It is not a reference to the place. And so we are not attached to this lovely little underground sanctuary that we've been worshiping in for the last year and a half, some odd. Uh, we will go wherever God calls us. The next place that God has opened up for us is we're going to share space with another local church here. We're going to use their sanctuary, their kids' classes. It's an incredible upgrade. We see God's hand all over it. We're really excited about it. Um, and it's, it's going to give us room to grow in every possible area. Um, and so we, we just see that God's provision is, is all over that, really thankful but that probably isn't going to be our, our end spot. I see that 
we very well could grow out of that. We may buy a warehouse someday and retrofit it. I don't know. We may spread a bunch of tarps in a tree and get under that. We might buy Billy Graham's tent. I think he's retiring. I don't know. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. Where we meet, we're willing to change. We are not tied to a location because God no longer lives in a temple made with hands, as my brother Paul said. Does he? He lives in us. And so wherever it is that we gather together, wherever it is we lift our voices to declare his glory, wherever it is we gather to study his word together, to lift up Jesus, to exalt him, he'll be there with us. And so if that's a tunnel under a bridge, it doesn't matter. We'll be all right. So we will change where we meet. We're not married to any location, and we're not even really going to struggle. Because as we grow, as we change, as needs uh, arise, we can, we can relocate and, you know, we're not going to have to do a bunch of counseling, you know, getting people to detach from this beautiful location here. <laughs> we're really thankful for this. <clears throat> I'm cracking jokes, but this was exactly what we needed when we needed it. And it's, it's served our purpose incredibly well, and I'm very thankful. And just, just a word on that. Some of you might, might just be freaked out by, like, two churches sharing one space. And can, can I just say, like, from a stewardship perspective, um, if, a, if a church has a huge facility that they're not using in the time slot that, that we would use it, like, it just makes good sense to not go... You know, build another building, build out another building, occupy another building, pay the utilities to heat and cool that, use a bunch of God's money to sustain another facility when two kingdom-minded ministries could coexist in the same place, understanding that the message is the same, though their methods may be different, <clears throat> understanding that's not a conflict, and uh, both use, share, and steward a space together for God's glory. I, I think it's beautiful. I'm really encouraged that it's possible. There's people that tell you it wouldn't, that it can't work. Well, you're wrong. Okay. Uh, something else that we're willing to change. Hear that little crack in the voice start? <clears throat> Good. Lots of throat claim. How we dress. This will be fun. Personally, I'm waiting for kilts to come back in style. Or at least get here. I think... What? Are you serious, Pastor Vince? You would preach in a kilt? Honestly, if I had my preference, uh, I would preach from horseback, pacing in front of you in gladiator armor. Um, but the other leaders here have shut that down and shot that down repeatedly. So every time we vote, they say no. So apparently that's not okay. Um, I think it has more to do with feeding and taking care of a horse that they're worried about. But... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm just being honest. So, um, but here's the thing, how we dress, right? Um, there are, <laughs> throughout history, people have dressed different when they've gathered as a church, okay? And some people get, I mean, I made a reference to what I wear. Some people get, would be super freaked out by the fact that I'm not in a robe right now uh, as, I'm, as I'm preaching the Bible to you. Um, here's, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not totally opposed to robes. They're big, flowy. If I gain a little weight, you won't be able to tell. If you see a cool robe and you want me to try it on, I'm willing to do that. But here's the thing. Uh, in no way is the gospel message harmed by the fact that I'm not in a robe 
or a suit. I mean, I think, honest to God, I think some people think that Jesus walked around in a Western business suit. Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, the men wore <laughs> what everyone else wore, right? And so, and that doesn't mean in order to, to be biblical, we have to figure out what was, you know, what was, what was, what was dress, you know, in, in first century Jerusalem, and, and we're all running around in, in, in togas and girdles and stuff. I mean, no, man. We, do, we, wear, we wear what's available. Here's the, here's the parameters that are given to us for, for dress in the Bible. Uh, modest. You know, that's something God cares about, is it? Uh, we don't, in life in general, or when we gather together, dress in such a way that we draw a bunch of attention to ourselves as opposed to give attention to Christ. He's the one we come to exalt. He's the one we come to notice. So, um, you know... If you, if you show up in a, in a suit that has a bunch of LED lights sewn on it, you know, and you've got a remote, we're probably going to talk to you about that. That's not modest. Clearly, you need some attention. Do you want friends? Let's go get coffee. Like, I'm willing to talk to you, but you're going to have to lose the LED suit, okay? Um, you know, and obviously, there's other ways that <clears throat> that, that happens. Lack of modesty is, is sometimes a cry for attention, and, and clearly, God cares about that, doesn't want you to... Um, Feel the need in your heart to draw attention to yourself that way, men or women. So uh, Jesus cares about modesty. We, we do see that he mentions dress during his ministry, but it's normally only to point out the fact that those that really care a lot about what they wear, the guys in tall hats and flowing robes, the Pharisees, he, he kind of makes a point to say that, you know, you should probably count less on that and worry more about what's going on in your heart. So for us here I love City. Here's what we care about: that you come dressed, okay? Put something on, um, you know, <laughs> please. And um, I, I, here's the deal: I, I'm much more concerned when it comes to getting ready to come and gather with God's people. I, I'm I'm much more concerned that you're paying attention to the condition of your heart, that you're coming expecting that you. Maybe pray that God's will would be done completely and that people would be healed and, and brokenness would be fixed and that sins would be forgiven. Uh, I'm really concerned that you care about that and you think about the service beforehand in that way rather than, um, you know, how's this suit going to look on me? And listen, if somebody, if somebody comes here and they're comfortable wearing a suit and it's not because they feel like that's the only thing God will accept them in, hallelujah, wear a suit. I like suits. I'll be preaching a wedding soon and I've got a really fly suit. Yeah. It's, it's nice, and I look good in it, so I don't mind a suit. Um, it's just, I, I, don't, I don't want us to have this idea that somehow we'll be more accepted by God if, if we wear s- some certain amount of clothes, and, I, and I've heard people say things like, uh, you know, <clears throat> you'd put a suit on if you're going to meet the president, and so, you know, God's more important than that, and so you should, you should dress nice. Here's the thing, man, dress is so subjective. I mean, go to any other continent, you know, Go, I mean, go to other places. What is nice is going to be different. And so um, there's that issue. And then on the other hand, um, you know, maybe, maybe the president would feel happy if you wore a suit to come meet him. But I just don't think Jesus cares. He's much more concerned about what's going on in your heart than what's, what's draping on your body. Okay? Everyone okay with that? <clears throat> and so what that means is, you know, if 40, 50 years from now... Uh, climate change is real and we all have to wear spacesuits all the time just to exist, we're not going to say, we've never wore spacesuits before and so we're not going to let those in here, right? And so everyone, in order to come gather with God's people, 
has to breathe noxious gas out of the out of the environment. No, like style will change, and we're okay with that uh, as long as it's modest and as not as long as it's not about drawing a bunch of attention to yourself. Um, <clears throat> for those of you that are hipsters, child, change, style will change more often, a lot more often. So we're okay with that. Have fun. <clears throat> um, it's. I, <laughs> I don't poke at that too hard because I realize I'm so easy to, to just cut down when it comes to the whole fashion thing, so I walk gingerly there. That's not funny either. <laughs> Thank you for most of you not laughing. Okay, so how we dress. We're willing to change that. We're willing to flex, bend on that. Um, hallelujah. Uh, the music that we worship God with. This is a sticking point for some people. Some people think there are certain beats and tempos only that reach the heart of God. The rest are, you know, from Satan himself. Um, <clears throat> we don't believe this is true, okay? Um, <laughs> for example, like uh, some of the hymns that we play here uh, that you, some of you think like that's old and, we, and I, I wish it, we'd do more updated music. Some of, some of those hymns, which are beautiful and we're not going to quit doing them, uh, although sometimes our worship team will infuse some of that with some, you know, uh, modern uh, changes to it and, and whatever, which which I really enjoy. But those hymns, when they originally came out, so the things that now many of you think that's old school, when those were first being written and first being played, there was many in in certain churches that were like highly offended by hymns because the cadence that they're played with was very similar to bar tunes of the day. And so people were up in arms over that, you know, like Nothing but the blood, like that, that was, that was, you might as well have been playing Marilyn Manson. You know, they were just like all freaked out that God was not going to accept nothing but the blood because it may have been somewhat resembled a song that was played down the street at the pub. This is ridiculous. Um, this is not something we're going to focus on. We, here's what we care about when it comes to music here at Love City. It has to point to Jesus. It has to point to the gospel. It should bring us to a place we're not going to sing songs about us, how we feel, um, <clears throat> you know, there's all kinds of songs that people sing that pass for worship, and it's got nothing to do with the God you're supposed to be worshiping, so we're not going to do that, but the music may change, and, and honestly, in 40 years, if we're still playing the same songs, we're probably going to have a problem, uh, and so I don't, I don't put a lot of parameters on our worship team, I believe they're anointed to uh, to choose songs, the only parameter I really give them is it's it's got to be about Jesus. It's got to be lifting him up. We should be singing about what matters most. We should sing songs that point to the risen Christ. We should sing songs that remind us why we're Christians and why we're happy about it. Uh, this is what we care about when it comes to worship. And so the beat may change. In 40 years, my, I don't know, worship might sound like techno. I pray daily that that's not the case. Uh, I pray against techno catching such, you know, acceptance that that's, that that's the way we worship God. But I don't know what the music will sound like. And we're not going to freak out about it. And we're going to be willing to change if it makes sense and if it helps us to reach the culture that God's called us to reach in the time and place he's called us to reach them. Amen? You happy about that? Okay. It'll always be about Jesus, though. I don't know totally what it'll sound like, but it'll always be about Jesus. That's what, we, uh, that's what we care about when it comes to music. Uh, so things that we're willing to change. Technology, okay? 
Um, <clears throat> many times people get up in arms about technology. Things like screens. Uh, there are many churches, um, less now, but especially when projector technology and stuff like that first started to get on, come on the, the, the stage there. And uh, some people thought, I mean, to have a screen that, I mean, the way they talked about it, you would think that that was a portal to hell itself and that Satan was going to jump out and eat everybody. I mean, since <laughs> we'll never have a screen. Well, here's the thing. It's cool because you can see the words of the songs. If you don't know it, it helps. Like, right? You know, some, some, uh, some churches use them and, and put the verses up there. I'm not saying we'll never do that. I just keep holding out hope that people are going to bring their Bible and just turn to the verse. It's, it's, it's just not that hard. Um, I don't care what you wear, but it'd be awesome if you brought a Bible. And if you do, you use, your, use your phone, hallelujah. Here, look at me. I'm talking about being okay, okay with change, and I'm, I'm revealing where my heels are dug in. I know some of you have a Bible app, and, and that's cool. Here's my only caution. Let me just say this to you, and you can, then you can decide what you're going to do. Your, your phone or whatever uh, device you're using to do that Bible app is, a, is an absolute endless source of distraction for you. And my only concern with, like, other than just, you know, having a paper Bible is just more spiritual. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but... You know, you're, you're in that Bible app or whatever, and a text comes across, or, you know, somebody beat your Candy Crush score, or whatever, you know, all the alerts that come up all the time on your phone, I'm just concerned that opens up possibility for kind of, kind of disrespecting what God's doing um, as, as the, the gospel's being preached, but also could distract you from what the Lord may want to say to you. So I, I do, I encourage you to bring a Bible. We probably should put the verses up there because some people don't have them, but if you don't have a Bible, by all means, let us know, and we will fix that. I promise. That's not a problem. We'll buy anybody and everybody that wants a Bible a Bible, okay? You good with that? Cool. All right. <clears throat> we, may <laughs> we might have 40 people come up afterwards that don't have Bibles, so, you know, expect an offering next week. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So, technology. We, we do use screens. Um, you know, also, kind of back to music, instruments change. You know, I don't know what instruments will look like in 40 years, but my God, if someone wants to learn how to play them, great, you know. Um, everyone may just sit up here with computers in 40 years and, you know, and that may be the way music is. I God, I hope not, but you just never know. Um, certain, um, certain denominations throughout history, as far as the church is concerned, have not liked certain instruments. Um, different technological advances, they're, they're really dig their heels in. We're not just going to jump on every bandwagon or just become student because some new technology comes out. We're not, you know, we don't feel like the gospel is so powerless in and of itself that we have to do the brand new, most edgiest thing all the time to keep people interested. The gospel has power. The gospel will draw broken people. The gospel will draw and do its work. Um, but if something's helpful, like a screen, I believe it's part of God's common grace to us and, and we'll use it. Okay, so... We are willing to change technology and, and do different things as far as that's concerned. <clears throat> I would bring to your attention as well the fact that um, the Paul, all the epistles, for example, that, that Paul wrote were on um, parchment, which would be dried out animal skins. Makes it much easier uh, to write than previous technologies. Plus, parchment would last longer than papyrus-based paper um, of, of the time. So, but but here's the like: what if what if the you know, there's a lot of um, Jews that were coming to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul and others. Um, what, what if they were like, well, here, here's the deal. <clears throat> you, you can't write on parchment. 
if God really wants to say something, he's going he's gonna to have you write it on stone like he did with Moses. You know, and so, like all the false religions and the cults, they get to use parchment. They're like cranking out their false lie scripture. And Paul's over there, you know, I got a chapter done this week. You know what I mean? Like, it would just be dumb, you know? It would be silly. And, and that's kind of an extreme example, but that's sometimes what we do. Sometimes what churches do with new technology that comes out. Like, if there's ways that we can use technology uh, things on, you know, I've realized there are really weird things on the internet. And, and so we don't believe, however, that you just totally cast out the internet, don't use it. We, there's redeemable elements of it. We can, man, we can post sermons on the internet. We can, there's all kinds of things we can do. We use it for communication. There's ways that we have less excuse now for the gospel not being to every single remote corner of the world than any other generation. We have tools that no one else has ever had. And so we need to use those. God has called us in this time, in this place, to bring glory to him and his gospel. And so we'll use the tools that are available to us. But we're not going to put faith in the tools. We're never going to say, because we have the internet and podcasts and a flashy website, that now everyone in Cincinnati is going to love Jesus. No, they're going to love Jesus because of what he did at the cross. They're going to love Jesus because the gospel has power and it always has and it always will. We can use those tools, however, to further that message. We're not going to, these changes we're willing to make, that we're never going <clears> to <throat> put faith in, in, in that being what's going to make the difference. It won't be. The message is what matters. But we will change methods. So, um, another thing, and this is odd, that people get upset about or have in the past, um, seating. There's been debates over time, different denominations, churches, about uh, chairs or pews, okay? Um, I don't care, to be honest with you. If it, you know, has a back and a place for your rumpus, then glory, you know what I mean? Um, but there's people that, like, they, they really think that uh, the Holy Spirit ministers best to people when they're sitting in a pew. Or there are people that would say, uh, simply because pews are old-fashioned and there's, you know, no distinction between your seat and the next, that they should all be burned in a big pile. Well, here's the thing. Um, we got these chairs when we moved in this building. We've been sitting in them, and glory to God, God has moved. He's touched people. Lives are changed. There's much fruit that's happened sitting in these simple gray chairs. Uh, the church that we're moving to, they already have pews. Praise God, we're going to sit in those. And some of you are going to have to rub elbows a little closer than you have. Hallelujah. It's going to be awesome, and it's going to change nothing about the way that God moves in our services. And here's the thing. We, we need to look forward and understand, you know, someday <laughs> we may all have, like, personal little flying hover-around type chairs that you control with your mind, and, and no place anywhere provides seating. Maybe everyone brings their own, you know. I'm talking back to the future hoverboard type stuff, not even the hover-arounds you see today with the wheels. Like, we could, at some point, all have our own little flying saucer. You don't even have to control a joystick. You just think and go. Technology's out there, people. Stay off YouTube, but if you go on there, check some of this stuff out. Um, <laughs> it's happening, all right? So that's the thing. So what are we going to do? Like, if that's the case, we'll... God's moved when we've been sitting in these pews, and so we're not going to take them out, and so you take all your gadgetry, hover-around chairs, and you go somewhere else. <clears throat> no. I mean, if, that gets, if it gets to the point where... 90% or greater of the American people are 
flying around their personal little hovercraft, we will clear the pews out and let them tootle right on in and come into the service, you know, and we'll leave a couple pews over there for whoever can't afford them. Now, um, I hope this doesn't happen because uh, we, <laughs> we already struggle with being a little bit too sedentary in this culture, so we really don't need mind-controlled hover chairs, but we normally don't show the restraint to know that, so um, it could happen. All right, but that's, you see what I'm saying? Again, a ridiculous example, but would we, would we link God's ability to change hearts and lives and the power of the gospel, would we link it to what it is we sit on? Would we, would we be so concerned about that? We're really not. I, I don't, I'm not that worried about it. Um, and, and there are many more things. We could sit here all day saying what it is we are willing to change, but, but what's, what I want you to remember most is what we're not going to change. The methods we will flex, bend, and change on in order to reach the people in the time and place that God has called us to. Yes, we will do what Paul did. We will do what the other apostles did. We will be mindful of who it is that uh, we are preaching to, that we are called to minister to. Um, but we will not, we will not ever abandon the message for the sake of reaching people because you're not reaching them then. You're tickling their ears, telling them what they want to hear. You're entertaining them as opposed to bringing them to the beautiful truth of the gospel that is their deepest need. Whether they like that, want to hear that or not, it is what we're called to do. And so we have to figure out a way to do that with grace and with anointing and within the cultural context that God has called us. Okay? Hallelujah. Jesus wins. Doesn't matter what you're sitting in. Um, <clears throat> those of you that are still thinking about how cool it would be to have one of those hover chairs, I need you to come back with me. I've got more stuff to say, okay? I know. It was my fault. I mentioned it, but <laughs> come on. All right. Just a little bit more. Uh, if you were here last week, um, I told you that uh, it's, we, we kind of had a difficult season um, as leadership here of, of praying, searching, going crazy, gathering ourselves again, and uh, praying again, and, and we have found what we believe is God's will concerning our next location. Uh, if you weren't here, I wanted to reiterate that. Also, I need to say it again because this is our last service here. Next week, we will meet uh, in our new location, which is really, really exciting. So, amen. Um, and uh, I told you guys last week, it's... Uh, I, I prayed for several things uh, that we would have more space because we keep maxing this room out. So we would have more space for adults. Desperately need more space for kids. Our kids' ministry is busting at the seams. Our kids' discipleship. Um, and, and it's, you know, if all we cared about was keeping them quiet so that you could come and enjoy yourself, uh, one room would do. You know, one room and some duct tape could get that job done. Uh, but we don't. While we're in here being discipled, we want them in there being discipled. We care deeply that our kids are growing in Christ. And so uh, we needed better facilities and space to get that job done. And so this will absolutely accommodate that. Um, one of the struggles of urban ministry, you know, uh, for a long time, churches have gone just to the outskirts of wherever civilization is, buy land, build a building so you can have plenty of parking and stuff, and then expect that um, <clears throat> civilization will kind of come and fill in around that, uh, you know, Culture is, is bucking a trend instead of people moving out of cities 
currently you're seeing an influx in, and so that's part of why I believe God called us to Norwood, an urban context, smack dab in the middle of the Cincinnati region uh, to proclaim his gospel for his glory, but it brings with it challenges. For example, not tons of space. So one thing that we've kind of struggled with here is parking, as some of you know, I'm sure. Uh, so it was kind of a stretch, but I, I really was hoping that we would just get some more parking spaces. It, it won't be enough. We'll outgrow it, and some of you will get frustrated again because you'll have to walk. Um, we'll get you a hover around. But uh, this, this, this facility has way more, par- like way more parking than most churches I've seen in, in an urban context, so that's a really big blessing. And then um, location was important. We wanted to stay close uh, to our friends at the Salvation Army. It's a ministry we've partnered with and we have great affection for, and so didn't want those guys to have to, you know, <clears throat> hike super far. And so and there's really just so many things about the situation that make it obvious that God is in it, that he's provided that for us. And we're really, really grateful. Um, so this is our last week. God was faithful um, to provide this, and he's been faithful to provide us with this next location. We give him all the glory. It's really hard. I, I, you know, unless you were on the journey with us, you wouldn't understand how difficult it is to find a space that accommodates a growing church in Norwood. It's not a huge geographical location. We knew we were called here. There was no flexibility on that. So we had to find somewhere to gather and worship together in the confines of the city of Norwood. It's so not easy, yet God made a way. Um, you know, I the, the first meeting I had with somebody uh, that was already a pastor in Norwood when we were coming here, we'd, we'd not even launched yet. I was meeting with this guy, sat down with him, and he said, You'll probably never find anywhere to meet unless you have a ton of money. I was like, man, you're a great encourager. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> that is the perception, though. Many, many ministries wouldn't, wouldn't even think about coming here because of that difficulty. So um, we're just going to trust the Lord. It's worked so far. And I don't think it'll stop. Okay? Um, this is a big change for us as a church family. Uh, it's, really, it's really easy to get attached sometimes to how things are, where they are, but we must often ask why they are. It's easy to get attached to how things are, where they are, but we need to ask often why things are the way they are. That's a good question, and if the only answer we can come up with for why we do something, where we do something, is that that's the way we've always done it, we're probably in trouble. And so if we ever figure out that that's the way we've always done it is the answer to why we do something. We're going to stop immediately and assess that. And if we can't come up with another good reason, we're going to scrap it. Yay, you're so thrilled about that, I can tell. Um, we're going to scrap that and come up with something different because just because that's the way we've done it is not a good reason to do anything. There should be a clear gospel contextual benefit to everything we do, where we do it, how we do it. If it's not furthering the mission and the vision that God has given us. If you haven't heard that in a while or this is your first time, I'll let you know. Here's why Love City Church exists, to see as many people as possible meet, worship, and joyfully serve Jesus Christ. We shorten it sometimes because words are hard, right? So we just want as many people as possible to meet Jesus. That's what we're about. That's why God called us into existence. That is our vision. That is what we want to see happen. That is why we exist. Our mission is how we believe we accomplish that vision. We want to see as many people as possible meet Jesus, and so the way we're going to do that is we're going to love God, we're going to love people, and we're going to make disciples. If we do those three things, 
when we're asking why we do something, how we do something, where we do something, it's going to run through a filter of, is that us loving God? Are we loving people? Are we making disciples with that? When it comes to, are we going to do a certain program? Are we going to make a certain change? Are we going to do something a certain way? How is it that it factors into accomplishing that goal and that vision? We're not just going to do stuff to do stuff because it's too important. This, what God's called us to, it's too big of a deal to get distracted out in all this auxiliary other minutia. We're on an eternal mission here. We are a part of the most important task force God's ever assembled, his people on mission to let people know they don't have to go to hell for eternity, but they can be lovingly reconciled to the God that made them. You'll never be a part of something bigger than being a Christian. You understand that? Some of you, some of you walk around with this deep desire to be a part of something big, not understanding the simple fact that you're a Christian and called to share the message of the gospel puts you in, on the most important team that's ever existed. Our job is to snatch people from darkness and bring them to light, to let them know they need not be hopeless, but they can put faith in Christ, spend eternity with the God that made them, and have joy and blessing in this life. Wow. What a job to do. And it's, it's not this compartmentalized thing that we do in addition to all the rest of life. This mission is woven into all that we do. Where you work, interacting with your family, all that you do every day, every minute. You are a Christian and thus on mission.